This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of uh, EMS uh, 2020, and uh, yeah, (laughs) should be exciting. Um, It is EMS 2020, actually, as in 2020 hindsight, has nothing to do with the year. I mean, that's two years ago, and no, it's not EMS 2022. Um, But you know what I appreciate about that joke? So for for those of you that don't know, there's a bit of a joke. When we... (laughs) When we named the podcast, we named it in 2019. So 2020 hadn't happened yet. And we didn't know that this was going to be like 2020 would be like the year to remember. Um, yeah. No matter what you did. And so people thought, though, but then we launched in 2020. We launched in May of 2020. And then people thought that, you know, it was EMS 2020. And it has something to do with the year. And so there was a joke like, well, what are you going to do 20, come 2021? Is it going to be EMS 2021? And we had to explain the title like, so many times that now people are just like, hey, yeah, EMS 2021, 2022, 2023. But what I like about that joke is that uh, it says that people think we're going to be around that long, which is great. And we are going to be around that long, by the yeah. way. I'm not like saying yeah. you think that suckers. Yeah. But this yeah. is it. This is the last episode. It's not. <laughs> this is the last one. Yeah. A decade ago when we started EMS 2020 in the year 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh- <laughs> I don't know. I don't even want to know anything about EMS 2030. Um, but yeah. So with that, guys, uh, thanks again for tuning into another uh, episode. Uh, please follow us on social media. We are EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook. EMS 2020 show on Instagram. Each and every episode gets its very own social media post where you can go chat about the episode. You guys have been. It's been really great to interact with you guys. Um, I know a lot of you guys recently have been giving us and sending us sending us lots of messages with uh, lots of questions and it's been great we're trying to get through all of them but it is just the two of us uh, and also you guys have been sending us tons and tons of calls to review uh, which has been awesome that's a really good problem for us to have lots of content oh, to yeah. go through uh, so if you want to add to the pile of content uh, send an email to ems2020 podcast at gmail.com and we will review it and see if we can't make uh, an episode of it if we do make an episode of it we will be sure to contact you and get any additional details about the story uh, that we need. Uh, yeah. Also, if you guys like continuing education, uh, which of course you should because you need it to maintain your certification, then head on over to Guardian CME where you can get free continuing education and not spend a single dime. You can actually get all of your hours for the National Registry uh, at Guardian CME because National Registry has uh, decided that you can get them all online now instead of just 35 hours for paramedic. We do want to clarify uh, one quick thing, and that is there is an inherent delay in our episodes uh, airing to them being available on guardiancme.com for continuing education. There's a process of getting them approved and accredited, and that just takes uh, that takes a little bit of time. But we still have quite the log of episodes on Guardian CME currently, so head on over there, check out some of our content, and get some continuing education for it. Uh, with that, shit, Spence, what you got? Yeah, all right. Well, I will start with a hint about today's call. A it's going to have a heavy a hint. Perfect. It's going to have a heavy focus on crew resource management. So with that in mind, let's talk about who sent us this call. It's a very flight oriented term. Yeah, but should it be? All right. 
Here we go. True. Today's checkered EMS story comes to us from the queen. The queen has been a paramedic for about four-ish months at the time of the call. Uh, prior to this, they worked as an EMT for about five years, with three of those years working in their current system. But the queen isn't on this board alone. No, they are partnered with the bishop, who at the time of this call had about a year of paramedic experience with three years total service at the agency. Additionally, joining them is a brand new EMT, who shall henceforth be dubbed the pawn. Ooh. This is the pawn's first day of work as an EMT ever. So ever we know who to blame. All right. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. And you know what? Like that's got to suck uh, with your first day of EMS uh, ending up on EMS 2020. Like you, you know, I'm surprised we don't. I know we've had a couple where they're like, yeah, and this was so and so's first day. Um, I'm surprised there's not more. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the system. Uh, these pieces aren't operating on a USCF approved 64 square with each square measuring between two inches and two and a half inches. No, these pieces are working for an EMS service, which covers a significantly larger space, a space which is also reported to be very rural. Uh, this service has one ambulance to respond to medical slash trauma calls within their service area, aka the large and slightly more geographic chessboard. Uh, this is a service that is governed by a county board uh but i i don't think i established really well whether it was a county owned or privately owned service but uh yeah uh either way there are about six full-time employees all of whom are paramedics and there are about 10 to 12 part-time employees who staff this ambulance for 24 hours at a time with very varying certification levels so the crew types responding to, you know, the 911 calls can vary. Sometimes the ambulance runs medic medic and other times it's EMT medic. Okay. Um, there are additional resources that could be available to respond to calls if needed. There are a few small fire departments occupying different squares on the game board, but they're all volunteer based and not often tapped out to calls unless it's an MVC or, you know, a uh, fire. Um, if the ambulance crew feels they'll need additional hands, then they can request help from the local fire department or from the lieutenant of their own EMS service, who is basically a guy who's on call. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and they can respond. They actually have their own vehicle that they can respond in to come and assist. In addition, a good portion of the employees of this service, uh, they live in the service area and they could also respond if they hear something serious get tapped out from home. So uh, the queen feels that many of the providers she works with are really good, though she does note that a lot of them tend to be a little more conservative when it comes to medicine. What do you mean by um, conservative? Like uh, just kind of like less is more uh, kind we of could do that. Yeah, gotcha. less is more kind of a thing, um, which, you know, that's. Not necessarily a bad thing, kind no, of it's not. situational Bennett. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, honestly, you know, uh, these crews often encounter situations in which they have to find a way, uh, a way to make do with what they have. That's kind of the big thing in this system. Okay. Um, thankfully, the lower population density also just tends to mean there's a lower call volume. Mm -hmm. um, so that you know that can be a double-edged sword sometimes. Yeah, that really can be. Uh, so one of the nice things about uh, having lower call volumes, it means there's less repetitive stress on your crews, which means that they get to enter calls a bit more fresher, a bit less exhausted, and you kind of tend to see less of the... 
How about this? The four-year paramedic that we talk about, which it's been a while since I've defined the four-year paramedic. Ooh, it has. So maybe I should redefine it. Um, yeah. I got my drink ready. Go on. <laughs> Perfect. Hope everybody else does, as long as you're not driving or going to need to drive. Uh, so, or on duty. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the four, So the four-year paramedic, here's, here's what it is. In the first four years of being a paramedic, like when you first come out of class, like you're kind of doing everything by the book, right? Like you're going down the NREMT skill sheet, you're doing your OPQRSTs, your samples, you're listening to everyone's lung sounds like you are just on the spot about every little point. And you start to create little shortcuts as time goes on. And usually by the time you've been around for four, uh, for four years, you've got enough shortcuts that sooner or later, you are going to screw up big enough to where you will know. And that usually happens right around four years because that is when you have had enough time to make shortcuts, but not enough experience to, to watch them fail you. But here's the bad side to the low call volume system is that you also don't necessarily get enough experience uh yeah. to see when it goes bad uh exactly or or even get enough experience to kind of like practice those skills and so that can happen yeah yeah or you miss the you know like you don't you you don't encounter enough of the weird stuff that kind of goes along with it you know that you don't True. find in the textbook that actually yeah. you know that actually ends up being part of the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> whatever pathophysiology sure. um yeah and it does kind of sound like um i wouldn't call this quite a, a i wouldn't call this like a, a paramedic um light system it seems like there's at least usually a medic and sometimes you have two medics on a truck um but yeah. sometimes the lower call volume systems will also come with uh fewer paramedics and on one hand it teaches you to be independent but on the other hand it's also uh sometimes your weaknesses can be hidden because there's none of the paramedic on scene to be like hey bro you you missed this you know, there's yeah. not, no one else really understand, not necessarily doesn't understand your scope, but nobody knows it quite as well as you do. And so there's always that. So anyway, yeah, moving on. All right. So for hospitals, we do have a level one trauma, stroke, STEMI and pediatric center. Uh, and that's about 40 minute transport over a mountain. Uh, the other hospital, which is also over a mountain, completely different about mountain. 35 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably it. Yeah. And it's a STEMI capable and it can also handle ischemic strokes. Okay. So, um, so with the rural aspect and the uh, long ground transport times, is there like air ambulance options or? Oh, excellent question. The answer is yes. Uh, an air ambulance is available, but the problem becomes uh, landing a helicopter requires resources because you have to have somebody go set up an LZ. Okay. And oftentimes there aren't the resources available to accomplish that. Or uh, as it was explained to me, uh, the LZ would essentially be have to be set up so far away that it actually wouldn't be saving the time that it's su supposed to be saving. So, yeah, that's that system. All right. So. We know a little something about the pieces and the board. Now let's review the game that was played. <clears throat> All right. On to the call. Now, the normal Queen's Gambit opens with D4 and black responding <laughs> D5. And then white follows up with C4, offering up a, a pawn to exchange to gain control of the center of the board or, you know, attempt to. But today's game starts with the following opening moves. It's just after 0600 hours and the queen, the bishop and their brand new EMT, the pawn, are sitting in the ambulance going over the various equipments and kits. Um, but this important task is interrupted because their opponent, work, has made its <laughs> opening move. 
a medical call. This call is for a 30-year-old female having difficulty breathing. The address of this call is a private residence located inside the town that their service operates out of, which amounts to about a three-minute drive away. There are no dispatched updates en route, and, well, I assumed that was because of, like, it's a proximity thing. If you're only going three minutes, who's going to, up? You know, what's the update? Uh, but it turns out that there's actually just never dispatched updates in route. It ends up being that this dispatch center doesn't often get updates as it's not an accredited 911 call center. And so they actually just like hang up after they figure out what you need so, and start it your way. Okay. So when you call, so when you call 911, do you go to this center or do you go somewhere else? And then that call gets turfed to another, to this center. Like now this, this is, this is who they call is my understanding. So is they call so 911 here and it's, it's just this, Gotcha. Center. Okay. And they go, Hey man, what's going on? Or gotcha. you know, something more professional. And you yeah. go, I don't know. My toe hurts. And they're like, all right, sending someone out your way for your toe pain. And gotcha. that's sort of the, yeah. So yeah, the so these, these do exist by the way. And I think there's a lot of people who, who are not aware of this. Uh, Cause a lot of us are very much so used to normal, you know, 911, what's your emergency or, you know, police, fire, medical. And uh, then they go on and they ask these specific questions. They go down triage cards and then they end it with either giving you CPR instructions or something along the lines of, you know, do yeah. you need me to stay on the line? Those kind of things. They don't just hang up on you, but there are areas that do not have accredited 911 centers answering 911. And they, essentially do it however they do it and that's yeah. like there's no accreditation because for whatever reason the municipality they function in does not require it so yeah there you go yeah yeah uh so yeah that was a surprise to me as well mm -hmm. um yeah so anywho the queen establishes with the bishop in the pawn that she will take pic on this call and they discuss with the pawn the equipment that they usually bring in on respiratory calls all right, so they pull up in a two-story, slightly older, rundown home, and they see two people approach the ambulance as it pulls up. This will be a parent and a sibling of the patient. One of them is described as frantic, and the other one as just dazed. The queen described them to me as, these were the faces of people who just saw someone die. Oh. The frantic member screams to the ambulance crew to hurry as they don't know whether the patient is breathing anymore. The pawn, who is in the back of the ambulance, is told to grab everything. Sweet. And everything, Chris being the following equipment, it's their monitor, their portable suction device, a drug box, a code bag, or like airway bag, major medical, you know, whatever you want to call it, and the services O2 bottle. And I just, <laughs> the queen did make a point uh, that they all helped carry stuff in. This wasn't one of those oh, like, gosh, grab yeah. everything pawn. <laughs> That's what I was thinking moments. too. I'm just imagining this guy just you know, being the pack mule carrying stuff in. And one of the things that I, I'm side tangent, I, I hate separately, uh, O2 bottles that aren't in a kit. I just, I hate that. It drives me nuts. I, I, I kind of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to detail my experience with them because I don't want yeah. to, but, uh, there's several agencies that I've worked with that that's the way it is. And for some odd reason, it's just like, it's an extra super fucking awkward thing to carry. And they're like, Oh, but it's got a handle. I'm like, it's still awkward. Even though you yeah. put a handle on it. I just can you just put it in the bag that we're already got to carry in. And I'll get anyway, I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah. But I fucking, whenever I hear that, I'm like, ah, cringe. <laughs> Cause then it just gets left behind. Like that's what happens too. It's oh, just, yeah, it's totally. like, oh, I got the airway bag. Yeah. But did you bring the O2 that we kind of need on all the airway calls? Oh no, it's a separate fucking no. thing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. But there's my thing. It's like, why would, and she's going to beg that's big enough 
to store it in like many other services do because it's always going to go in with you. You're never going to be like, all right, we saved some weight. No, we just leave it on the stretcher. They don't need it inside the house. The amount of weight that you add to a reasonable, don't get me wrong. There are some manufacturers that I'm sure can add tons of weight, needless fucking weight to a kit. But if you think if you're, if you're carrying bags, the amount of weight that's present in the cloth and maybe bits of plastic to extend it just big enough to carry an O2 bottle is probably not noticeable by a human being. I don't give a shit what someone says. I always hate when people are like, oh, we chose this bag because it's actually uh, 14 ounces lighter. Shut up. No one will notice 14 fucking ounces. You could not put that on your back and tell me with, with any reasonable ounce of truth Oh, yeah, that's 14 more ounces on that. No one can. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to buy that 14 extra ounces in that fucking bag. Put your goddamn O2 bottle in it and carry it. People are like, well, no, it's really heavy because the O2 bottle. You're carrying it in anyway. It's just now going to go in in one bag. You're going to carry it with one strap. You'll have an extra hand to open the goddamn doorknob. <laughs> and you know what else? Chris you has want? feelings. Yeah. <laughs> you also happen if you drop it, at least you have the packaging and all the surrounding stuff protecting it. You drop that little rocket that you put a freaking nylon handle on. Oh boy, duck and cover. Okay. Let's move on. Oh man. All right, nice. Uh, the family instructs the crew that the patient's room where the patient is currently located has to be accessed from a door that's on the backside of the house. This Mm. is probably a good time to point out, by the way, that it is still very dark out. Um, The crew follow the instructions and make their way into the light, uh, lightless inky darkness of behind the home. They climb onto a questionable back porch, enter through a narrow doorway, which leads right to some very narrow and unlit steep steps, which then take them into a poorly lit attic that's been converted into a bedroom. So they arrive at the top of the stairs to the bedroom and note there is a 30-year-old female lying supine in the middle of the floor. The patient is described as being about 5 foot 6 inches, so 66 centimeters, and about 100 kilograms or 220 pounds. She's noted to be wearing comfy pajama clothing, and right upon seeing her, the queen says like, oh, that looks like a dead person, but more on that in a moment. I'm going to address this question right now because I know Chris will want to know it. The temperature in the attic was actually reported to be a comfortable room temperature. Yeah. You know what else I want to know? Um, what I'm absolutely looking forward to now is like all the yeah. listeners that are going to give me the one off like scenario where having the bottle separate is actually more helpful. That's, that's what I'm waiting for. Like, okay. Yes, but what yep. if, what if Challenge. the weather is 71 degrees Fahrenheit? And it's just going to be like this one minimized scenario. I'm like, hey, you know what? You know what? For for the uh, the one out of 9,000 calls where it makes sense to have it separate, just fucking take it out of the bag. <laughs> Chris like, is if you really down the want gauntlet. that, if you really want that, <laughs> if you really want the ability, there's a great way to take it out of the bag. Because here's what you can't do. Here's what you can't do. If you typically store it separately and you don't have a bag that can accommodate the O2, you can't put it in because you don't have the space. But if you got a bag with the space, you can take it out. And then all you have is 14 extra ounces that you can't feel. (laughs) Check and mate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So they just enter the room and they see the patient. (laughs) 
Bishop immediately diagonals their way over to the patient. And thankfully, side note here, the patient was on the right colored square because that would have been embarrassing. Like, right. whoops, brought the wrong bishop. Uh, but thankfully, again, on the right you square. You just can't get so- to the patient. Do compressions. <laughs> I can't. I can get adjacent, but yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they perform, they perform a sternal rub and get no response and then quickly check for a carotid pulse. Sorry, guys, all the I can do is scribe. <laughs> oh, I, that's next time I go on a code. That's that'll be me. Like, yeah, guys, sorry. <laughs> wrong color square. I'll just scribe. Nice. Uh, the queen asks. Is there a pulse? And Bishop announces no pulse and starts performing chest compressions. The queen heads over. Yeah, I agree. The queen heads over to the patient's head and retrieves a BVM from their airway kit. They then cut the patient's shirt open with their shears and instruct the pawn on turning on the monitor so that the defib pads can get placed. The O2 on the BVM is set to 15 liters per minute. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's not set in a bag. (laughs) (laughs) you are right it's not now the the queen realizes that they are starting this call with a disadvantaged position they are currently at the top of a narrow set of steep stairs working a cardiac arrest of unknown origin with no bystander cpr initiated and they're doing this with only a crew of three people so they know that they need to get more pieces on the board if they're going to have a chance the queen tries uh, to radio into their dispatch to get more help but they have no luck getting through dispatch doesn't even respond the queen did comment that uh the radios aren't great in the service, and also, additionally, they are wearing AP100 masks. Oh, that's like the big that, old, like, that That has the it's yeah. big plastic thing with two filters that plug into it. That's yeah, that is. and right. if you haven't used it uh, for or seen or been near people who are using it, like, it actually is very difficult to understand what the fuck oh, people yeah. are saying on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I get it. Uh The queen then decides, you know what? I'm just going to use the cell phone and they call the king. The king, by the way, is the aforementioned lieutenant for this EMS agency. Oh, gotcha. Uh, So the queen says they shouted uh, into the phone. Hey, it's a code. We need help. Get over here. But fun fact, the king only heard. (laughs) Nice. But thankfully, despite the incomprehensible speech, they got the gist of the message that like help was needed and announced that they are on their way. They are on their way one square at a time. (laughs) Going back. Right. Thank you. Going back to the patient. The pawn has encountered a problem with placing the pads. They won't stick to the patient due to the copious amounts of sweat that are present ah. the queen assists in troubleshooting okay so the first two minute ra- the first two minute round of cpr is coming to an end and the next round starts with the pawn and the bishop switching cpr roles and the bishop now working on getting the pads to stick as well they ultimately solve this problem by just opening a new set of pads and placing those successfully and the thought is like maybe some of the gel from the first pads helped make them patient sticky enough I don't okay. know. Yep. Well, it worked. Either way, with the pads on, the queen, note, the queen notes that the patient is in a systole on the monitor. The queen then places an OPA to go along with the BAVM and high flow O2. 
Now, with the defib pads finally on and compressions and BBMing happening, the queen and the bishop trade out on airway, and the queen heads down the board to the legs so they can start an IO. What, uh, where do they place the IO? Uh, so they're going to do a tibial IO. I gotcha. I guess if she's moving down to the legs, you, you did say that. I guess that would be a probably the one you'd want to go for if you're thinking tibial IO. well i mean there are actually i mean they do have like, I mean, yeah, there they are could do like a femoral, femoral or yeah. You know, yeah, yeah 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 there are some femoral spots um do they are they allowed to do humeral head ios uh they they can in this service what they chose not to uh because it was just too crowded at the head there is some data right now that seems to show that like a proximal iv or a proximal io that being like you know waist up io so humeral head io are really important in cardiac arrests. It's it, we're not getting the same like good results uh, with uh, tibial IOs that yeah. we are with like proximal <clears throat> IVs. Yeah, and I would also say like I mean just being in the services we've been in, you know, a, predominantly they have switched to you know the humeral head being the the preferred placement, and, and I can tell you having placed them in in both spots. Uh, the humeral head does seem to work better. It seems to flow better. I mean, I, I've had yeah. some decent flowing tibials. Don't get me wrong. It's not oh, possible sure. to make them yeah. work. But I mean, the humeral head just seems like every freaking time. It just seems to work so great. So, but yeah. anyway. So, All right. um, might be too early for me to bring this up, but uh, just kind of a quick thing about scene control. Is, mm -hmm. is the queen the one that's issuing these instructions to people or are people just kind of doing things like who's... I guess who's yeah. PIC at this point? No, that's a this is a good observation. No, so right now the queen states that everyone was just sort of like working together and solving problems kind of collectively as they came up. So mm -hmm. they weren't directly controlling the scene, even though they had announced that they were PIC. The, like the queen. In. Okay, gotcha. The, the queen, queen wasn't yep. directly controlling the scene. The, the scene. Yeah. Okay. Everyone's just kind of working together. Yeah. But the Perfect. queen was just sort of like observing and like, well, that needs to happen, so I'll let it happen. So okay. All right, so here we are. We are at the start of the third round of CPR, and the pawn continues their role of doing compressions for the second row in a second time in a row. Uh, the queen is down by the legs, setting up for the IO, and bishop is still on airway. And it's at this point in the game that the king and the knight make an appearance. Ooh, who's the knight? Oh, I'll I'm touch guessing on you're the knight in a that. moment. <laughs> yeah. But here they are. Uh, the king and the knight, who, again, I'll touch on in a second, announced their arrival about halfway up the stairs to the attic. And the queen, hearing the king, shouts for the king to go grab the Lucas device out of their vehicle. Luckily, the knight is able to hop over pieces, so they aren't hindered by the king's move here. The knight just simply hops over them and makes their L pattern into the room to their appropriate square. Perfect. Uh, so let's talk about the knight. The queen knows the knight. They are a part-time EMT employee with this ambulance service for this area. And additionally, they also are a volunteer firefighter in this community. Uh, their point is they're a well-respected, well-known piece. So the knight does their L-shape approach and informs the queen that they actually know this patient as they are oh. a relative. Oh. The queen. Yeah. Ooh. The queen, not wanting the knight to have to work a code on a relative, asks them if they'd be able to go downstairs and like talk with family, obtain HPI, like medical history. That's good thinking, actually. Uh, That's pretty quick. Yeah. Now, before the knight can even move, the king returns with Lucas, the automated CPR machine that does all the work for it. And you know what? Fuck it. Because it's so important, it's dubbed the Rook. 
Last nice. minute change. It's the Rook. Yeah. Uh, because it's, yeah, an important piece and, you know, like themes we've got going on. There you all go. Right. Uh, you know what? Speaking of themes, side note, the Queen said this all happened so fast that they felt like the King, like, teleported. So me calling the provider King actually might be a bit of a misnomer. Because, like Chris, you pointed out, in chess, the King can only move one square at a time in any direction. But this King fetched the Lucas, I mean, the Rook so Hold on. Wait, dude. Okay. So the king can move more than one square when castling, which in a way is like teleporting. And holy shit, because castling involves a rook and the king. Dude, so they fucking castled their way back into the scene. Now, hang uh, on. Ca- castling yeah. is, when, is when you swap the position of the king and the rook, right? It's Yeah, sort of. Exactly. You put your yeah. king in a little castle of three pawns. Yeah, but it's uh, it's the it allows the king to move more than one spot, which... I guess would be instantaneous kind of transfer. Oh, wow. <laughs> Transport. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it's a queenside castle because the queen ordered it. Boom. All right. So queenside. And now that, you know what? And that is checkmate on all the metaphors. I've got so many in here now. It's fucking 3D chess. Yeah. And God damn it. There's another one. Yeah. I, <laughs> I bow to your brilliance. <laughs> oh, God. What's the name of that? Uh, what's the name of that chess player? The one that they made movies and shit about? Oh, like Bobby Fisher. Bobby Fisher. Yep. Regular Bobby Fisher. So within this third round of CPR, the Rook gets put on. Uh, They finish the round with a rhythm and pulse check and find the patient still in a systole and bereft of pulse. Okay. They also hear some gurgling coming from the airway when they ventilate the patient. And that's, by the way, they're ventilating 30 to 2, if I haven't said that. Okay. Uh, The queen now kind of turns back to work on the IO that they still want to start. Well, the king, the bishop, and the pawn work on suctioning the patient's airway. And the queen had said that they felt that the airway, specifically ventilation and oxygenation, were big concerns for this patient, given that the dispatch information they had started out with difficulty breathing. So they did here take time here to like vocalize the importance of this to the crew. Okay. Um, so that brings us into the fourth round of CPR. The patient has vomit being suctioned up via the portable suction with the Yankauer tip. The knight returns to the room uh, with the following information. The patient has been sick with a cough for the last week and called their mother this morning to report chest pain. The patient's family came upstairs to find the patient gasping for air and then also laying on the floor, which prompted the 911 call. The knight believes that the patient stopped breathing shortly after the 911 call was made, which would make the patient downtime without compressions totally about five minutes long. Uh, The patient does have a history of drug abuse, although we're not sure which ones, and they are diabetic, but importantly, they have not been compliant with treatment. Oh, that's no good. the knight is tasked with fetching more equipment from the ambulance, like, uh, oh, man, could you grab us some you know, French, French suction catheters and a few other accoutrements? Uh, the pawn is tasked with checking a CPG and finds that it reads high. So, so for the record, that's um, most monitors high is going to be over 500. Um, and you will not know. Yeah. You don't get to know how far over 500. Uh, but that's, of course, uh, 500 deciliters. Um Ooh, are you going to do, do the, the math? Uh, yeah, we do yeah. the math here, <laughs> and uh, which would be uh, over twenty-seven point seven millimoles. Yeah. So, Boom. yeah, it's pretty pretty high. That's yeah, that would be. Um, someone at the head does check peoples with the history of drug abuse and notes that they are seven millimeters bilaterally and non-responsive. Mm, it's not great, mm, and yeah, that is also a bad sign, guys. 
Uh, All right. So the queen finally finishes the IO and gets the first round of one milligram, one to 10,000 epinephrine into the patient. And by the way, this is around the 10 minute mark. Yeah. So I just want to clarify when epinephrine should be administered per the American Heart Association's advanced cardiac life support uh, guidelines in a code. So according to American Heart Association, what you should be doing is once you've identified there's not a pulse, you're going to start start chest compressions uh, right or start CPR right off the bat, which is going to be compressions and ventilation, which is what they did. And then as soon as you can, you attach your monitor slash defibrillator. You see if the rhythm is shockable. In this case, uh, asystole is not a shockable rhythm. And so the very next step is you then give epinephrine as soon as possible, which means you're going to need that IV or IV, uh, IV or IO access. And then you're going to be giving epi every three to five minutes. The way a lot of people do this is by they, they do their CPR, their two minute cycles. So every two cycles is four minutes, which is right in the middle of three to five minutes. So every time you do two cycles of CPR, you just give epi. And then in between, yeah. you're giving an antidysrhythmic if it's indicated, which in asystole, it's not. Uh, so the fact yeah. that we're at the 10 minute mark and we're giving our first uh, milligram of epi, uh, we're a little behind. Yeah. And here's Queen's explanation for the delay, because I did ask about this, like, hey, what was going on? What like what what do you feel was kind of like hindering you from getting that on board early? And the answer is really just, you know, like kind of what I'd expect. Like, there's just a lot going on. There's right. not a lot of ton to, you know, not, not a ton of room to work this code up in this space. They're working. Uh, the queen said that they wanted to make sure like stuff was getting done specifically that airway stuff was happening. So yeah, like there were interruptions with, you know, people coming in, there's troubleshooting with equipment. Um, yeah. there's history that's being brought in and, and stuff that's being tasked out because of that. And there were also treatments and conversations that happened between all the pieces so, or excuse me, there were also treatment conversations yeah. that happened between all the pieces regarding the trees. So, yeah, it's just going to say like chaos essentially is what delayed uh, this from getting done earlier. Gotcha. Um, Speaking of treatments, they also start at this point some IV fluid. Uh, they started a liter of saline, which is being administered via I, uh, the IO that they have, and that's going in wide open. And that's basically because of the finding of hi- hyperglycemia. Um, in the history of diabetes. Um, so after this fluid has started, the queen looks up uh, from her task and realizes that the king has a laryngoscope blade inserted into the patient's mouth. Uh, oh. This is a DL blade. Not sure if it's a Mac or Biller, but uh, it's in there. And the king announces that they can see the cords. And the queen says, uh, okay, so in a bait. But the king reports that they were just looking to make sure there wasn't an airway obstruction in this patient. Uh, They are not actually prepared to do any intubation. And this initially confuses the queen. But after a quick discussion, they all agree like, hey, let's just intubate the patient because that makes sense. And so they move towards that. Did I miss miss the PIC calling for intubation at all? Uh, No, you did not. Because that wasn't called for by the PIC. Gotcha. All right. So the queen jumps up to help the king and set up their equipment, you know, as airway stuff is basically described as everywhere. Well, the bishop works with the pawn to help prepare the BVETT for after the attempt is complete. All right. So the bishop steps in at this point to take over helping the king prepare and the queen retreats back down the board to the monitor IV drug roll to set up their next dose of epi. And this is about the time the queen realizes that their timekeeping for this match has been off because it's now been about six minutes since they gave that first dose of epi and last did a pulse check. So 
they do another one now and assistly no pulse and then they give that second round of epi while the king makes their intubation attempt we unfortunately don't know much about this attempt beyond that they used a dl scope so that's direct no video aspects to it um they used a stylet with this attempt and uh this attempt occurred with cpr happening so they continued compressions no one stopped compressions which is a good thing um so <clears throat> After the intubation is complete, they request that an entitled CO2 device be passed up to confirm the placement, uh, which the queen hands to them <clears> from their <throat> position at the monitor. Now, the is this like, capnograph like, 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 does this have actual capnography? Are we seeing a value in this or is this like yes. one of those color changers? This okay. is capnography attached to the monitor. So gotcha. you'll get a number and a waveform. Um, and the queen briefly sees a reading of five millimeters of mercury and oh. assumes that the second it, it assumes in that second that the tube is in because they are trying to get back ahead of the call mentally. So the queen is trying to get this code and timing back on track. They're thinking about the next drug they'll dr need to draw up, which is more epi. And at this point, they also realize that they need to go and check in with the family as the likelihood of this patient getting ROSC seems incredibly small. And mm -hmm. they do want to prepare the family for that possibility. So the queen announces to the team that they're going to go downstairs and check in with the family. The team reports they understand and the queen departs the scene to accomplish that. The family and some community members are present when the queen finds them and the queen explains to them the current situation. They are doing CPR. We're moving blood and we are breathing for the patient. Uh, they're giving her medications to help, but they don't seem to have helped yet and they might not. This is a good thing. This is setting expectations. Um, she does offer the family like a chance to come up and be present while EMS is working if they'd like to, but they don't take her up on that offer. So the queen then returns to the attic and find the, and they find the king in the middle of their second intubation attempt with the bishop and pawn assisting. The entitled CO2 of five apparently did not improve after the breaths with that first attempt. Uh, so at the end of the attempt, uh, it's at the end of this attempt. Now it's time for another pulse and rhythm check. And also for the third round of Epi to go in. And so the queen administers it while she's doing that. The Bishop auscultates lung sounds, which there are none. And also there's no capnography reading on the monitor either. So the Bishop tells the King, uh, Hey, let's just go with the IGEL airway device next. So, at this time, an eye gel gets placed, which is confirmed with an entitled reading of 25 millimeters of mercury with compressions going. And there's also equal and coarse lung sounds that are heard. Uh, there was additional vomit noted in the airway after the last ET tube was removed. So the king and bishop work uh, together to suction that up using the suction port of the eye gel and a French catheter while the pawn ventilates the patient with the bag valve device still on that high flow O2. The queen realizes they are now out of their premixed epi, meaning they're going to have to dilute their own. Um, as they're diluting this medication out, they realize they're also now past the 20 minute mark of a code with okay. a patient who's been in a systole the entire time. The queen says that at this juncture, they thought, you know what, let's do another round of CPR for the epi we're already like drying up and then we'll contact OLMC to discuss terminating the resuscitation. Uh, all right, Spence, just really quick to keep track of epi. So she is making the fourth epinephrine right now, right? 
Yes, this okay, is the fourth one. So we one. had so we had Epi number one at ten minutes, a little bit late. Epi number two also late at about six minutes, and so Epi number three, I'm guessing, probably happened to like the nineteen minute mark somewhere around there, three minutes after that, yeah. or maybe right at the twenty minute mark if they did it right at four minutes with the CPR timing. And now they're drawing up the fourth. Okay, got it. I am up to date. All right. Yeah. Anyway, nice. and so now they're talking about now they're going to try and they're going to give this fourth Epi, then talk to OLMC about terminating resuscitation. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. And that is the expectation, by the way, in this area that you do at least 20 minutes of CPR in patients whom it makes sense to do CPR on. Mm-hmm. And then after 20 minutes, you contact OLMC for orders. Yeah. That's, that's pretty normal, actually, if there's some non-EMS uh, people listening, um, is that if we start working a code, they'll want us to have a, a doctor to contact before we stop. It's not in every municipality, um, but yeah. in in a lot of them. And the kind of thought is this, is like if you thought they were viable enough to do chest compression, then we should really make sure that if we're not going to try and save their life that, you know, we have good reason to do so. But uh, if you didn't start chest compressions at all, like you walk in there and they're like mummified and cold and or just like a pile of bones someone found, you know, like you don't have to start CPR on that. You know, you don't have to like if they're decapitated, you don't have to find the head and move it closer. and try. Like You don't. You've got bring it over, man. We can do it. Line the tracheas up, you know, like it's in bag. Yeah, you don't have to do that. So anyway, we're going to need so many inclusive dressings. Yeah. And and, and in those cases, like you don't have to call a doc either. Like you're going to call a doctor, but hey, they're decapitated. Should we start? They're going to be like, no. Why are you calling me for that? who is this? What service are you with? Right, exactly. Spell your name for me. P F I O L I V E R. Ah, there it is. Foliver. <laughs> so the queen discusses their plan with the king, the bishop, and the pawn, and everyone agrees with it. So they end up giving that dose of epi, and they do two more minutes of CPR, and there is no change. Online medical control is contacted and orders are given by Dr. Stockfish to terminate the resuscitation attempt and declare the patient deceased. What is Dr. Stockfish? Dr. Stockfish. So Stockfish is a, uh, it's a, it's a tool that you can use to like determine if you made good chess moves in a game. Okay, gotcha. At first, yeah. I, I literally thought, like, did you just put an actual doc's name, like, in the thing? Because we probably shouldn't. But, okay. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, that subtle joke, God destroyed. But I don't think anyone would have gotten it. It just sounds like a name. <laughs> the chess nerds would have gotten it. Someone would have been like, you know, tip of the hat. Right. Yeah. But I bet. All right. You do that. I'm going to Google see if there really is a Dr. Stockfish out there that you just threw under the bus. <laughs> there probably is. Fucking yeah. Works. Let's see. Yeah. Dr. Gregory Stuck- Stockfish <laughs> of Westernville, Ohio. We're not talking about Dr. Gregory Stockfish of Westernville, Ohio. Or are we? What's his specialty? Uh, he is not an ER doctor. He's a podiatry specialist, of course. He's a podiatrist. <laughs> Dude, toe pain. There it is. Yeah. Da- boom. All right. Perfect. <laughs> We'll bill him for for advertising later. (laughs) The bishop, pawn, and king then clean up some of the mess and cover the patient in a blanket. The queen goes downstairs to deliver the heartbreaking news to the family. And I want to clarify what we mean by clean up because this is one of those situations where law enforcement may want to do an investigation. It's pretty strange for a 30-year-old to suddenly die. Yep, I can Um, see that. So that might be something where they, you know, investigate. So want the medical examiner to come out, which means that you have to leave your equipment in place, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and you really 
do want to do your best to like preserve the evidence. But that doesn't mean that you like, you know, like if you've destroyed the room, you leave the room. You know, it doesn't mean you can't cover the patient in a blanket. Um, you know, at least yeah. no one has told me that I can't. Yeah. Um, and so this is a this is kind of a nice move, and it also pre- allows for family who will most more than likely want to come up and see the body, like to yeah. come up and see the body. And um, yeah, that that is something you want to check with your agency on, see if they have a specific policy regarding that. Some agencies do, like they'll they'll say exactly how you should enter and, and leave a scene. And um, also if the family's going to come up and uh, check on the body, uh, make sure that you're not caught up there with a bag that can't hold an oxygen tank because they're going to be like, wow, <laughs> these guys are so fucking stupid. That is why my loved one died. If they would have just spent a little extra money and carried around 14 extra ounces. Yeah. They probably wow. noticed the 14 extra ounces, which is why their chest compressions were so shitty. Oh, man, I fell for that trap. Jesus. Well done. All right. All right. So let's talk about the Fucking let's talk monsters. about the good things that happened to the family. We are really bad. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the queen is down there talking with the family and they opened up with a gentle, like, I'm sorry, she's dead. Um, and she explains that they did everything that they could, but that it didn't work and that she died. She apologized again for their loss. And she did offer to let them come up and see the patient and took the time to explain the next steps. Their police were coming out and would likely ask a lot of really standard questions. Um, and you know, so that they know what to expect. And ultimately the family thanked the queen for their efforts. Uh, police arrived quickly afterwards and took over, you know, possession of the body and the crew departed. Now this crew did something really good. They debriefed afterwards and they discussed the ways the call went great and the struggles. And they did like get feedback, uh, by the way, on this patient, they found out that the patient uh, was found to be in DKA and was also COVID positive. Um, so I'm going to say this. I am glad they debriefed. I like to debrief too. And sometimes I'll be with crews that don't. And I'll be like, hey guys, you want to debrief this before you guys leave the hospital? Because they'll come, you know, they'll like ride in yeah. with us in the hospital, not in the air ambulance service that I'm in, but in the um, ground ambulance service that I work for. Um, and this will be like, nothing went great. And then they leave. I'm like, well, Okay. Thanks. Yeah. I'll right. see. Cause I had some things to say, but you know, you're, you're out. Not- That's fine. All right. So let me <laughs> summarize this call here. We got two paramedics in a brand new fresh out of the game box, uh, EMT and they are <laughs> dispatch. Do they come in a game box that I, is that a term in chess? I don't know. I don't Maybe. know. But that, yeah, it sounds awkward to me, but I, I don't play chess, so I don't. Anyway, right. And they're dispatched to a 30 year old female that has some trouble breathing. Boy, does she ever. The patient is found to be in cardiac arrest on their arrival and CPR is started by the three uh, crew members with additional help requested pretty early on. More help arrives in the form of another paramedic, another EMT and a Lucas device. There are a few. Th- yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there are a few struggles in the call, though. Uh, there's intervention struggles like the pads that wouldn't stick. And then, you know, having to address that, um, you know, the I.O. There's some lag time between getting the I.O. in the epi timing was off. Uh, someone just randomly deciding to take a look at an airway without being prepared to intubate in any way. Uh, yeah. And there's also like some personnel issues uh, you know, with night being a relative to the patient. I do want to commend uh, that the queen not only did a good job of trying to give night a useful 
role, um, but yeah. one that didn't have them putting hands directly on someone that they knew because that could be traumatic. But at the same time, like what you what what may be more traumatic is taking someone who has trained to respond and sending them away and to not help. Mm, and so if you can yeah. find them to be in a position where they can be useful, but also not traumatize them, uh, that's that that's pretty good. So I really actually want to commend the queen for finding that. Uh, the queen also yeah. did a really good job talking with the family, I thought. I felt they did. Yeah. At the end, they I, were very clear. Yeah, and we'll kind of, I think we'll detail that later because to me, kind of what I'm pulling out of this call is I got some PIC stuff I want to talk about, but I want to talk about that too. Uh, yeah. And ultimately... The patient was in a systole, which is flatline uh, for our non-EMS listeners, um, and they stayed that way until they were declared dead. Here's the thing about yeah. a systole. A systole, when you just freshly die, uh, versus a systole when you've been dead for days, is the same. It's, it's yeah. So it is, it is the, uh, of all the cardiac rhythms you can have, it's the deadest of the cardiac rhythms. That, if that makes sense. That, yeah. No, that's yeah. a perfect way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. It is the deadest of the cardiac rhythms. So, uh, it, it usually comes uh, later on in the process. Your, your heart uh, has a high probability of hitting, uh, cause there's four primary, uh, pulseless rhythms that your heart will do that don't generate a pulse that will require uh, chest compressions. It's not all just a systole. Uh, you have one called particular fibrillation, which is a useless wiggling of the lower half of the heart that doesn't pump any blood around. That's the one you shock. There's another one called pulseless VTAC, which is where the bottom half of the heart is like going so freaking fast that it really doesn't open long enough to fill with blood before it's pushing out again. So it doesn't generate a pulse. You can also shock that one. And then you have a PEA, which is pulseless electrical activity. That's where the heart appears to have an organized rhythm electrically, but for whatever reason, uh, it's not generating uh, a pulse. And that a, a common reason for that would be like hypovolemia. So like the heart's moving, but there's not enough blood uh, or volume uh, in the vasculature to push around. That's one thing that will lead to a PEA per, or perceived PEA. And then you have a systole, which is what we had today. <laughs> a systole, the, the deadest of all the, the dead rhythms. The deadest of all the dead rhythms. So, yeah. So, you're, yeah. So, there you go. Um, all right. That's so, quotable. I think that'll be a t-shirt. <laughs> there you go. The deadest of all the dead. God, it needs to be the deadest of all the dead rhythms. Now, there are some <laughs> PIC issues I want to touch on really quick. and But I, I do want to do something really quick. I kind of want to. I think we're going to have some listeners out there that are going to look at things like the delay in you know administering epinephrine and some of the delays. And I, I just kind of want to make something clear. There's a lot of clinical findings that this patient had that kind of led me to believe that uh, any effort, no matter how perfect, was going to be in vain with this patient. Um, yeah. And here's kind of why. So the patient was found to be in diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. And when someone's acidotic, that actually will usually cause uh, in an intact, in a patient who's neurologically intact, you'll actually have pupillary constriction. And so this patient did not have pupillary constriction. They had uh, pupil dilation and uh, pupillary dilation is uh, not a good sign. That's, that's a, that's a sign of significant uh, neurological damage uh, or amphetamine use uh, as well. Um, yeah. But um, that that's kind of a sign there. So for, so for this person to be acidotic, but also dilated at seven with non-responsive pupils, that, that that's not a good sign. And also, again, the deadest of 
of the yeah. hard rhythms, you know, so I just want to kind of if especially because family's involved, if the crew that ran this is in any way concerned that these uh, hitches uh, caused or led to the demise of this patient, just looking at what we have clinically, I don't believe so. I think, unfortunately, I think this patient had um, had missed the opportunity to save this patient was gone before you arrived. I That's agree. how I feel. I about agree it. with that. Um, yeah. So Spence, really quick. Um, what did you think of the end uh, title CO2 reading of five? I, I mean, I, I would have, I would have been like, Ooh, that's not, that's not the number I want to see. Right. Well, you okay. Know, but I, wh- wh- why do you think it's five? Because here's the thing is you get low end title for a couple of reasons. Uh, if I saw five, I wouldn't be convinced the two was in. I know there's a lot of people that'd be like, Oh, well, you know, like any entitled reading, uh, on that thing has got to be coming from the lungs. Um, Mm, not necessarily. Exactly. And I think the point is, is like you might get a five and if that number doesn't climb up, then yeah. it's not in, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, if it only decreases, then you never were in and you were probably getting some kind of residual CO2 from the stomach. Yeah. Um, or anywhere I, else in the airway, really. I mean, it, it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I, I see the five. I think the the tube's not in. I mean, I, I guess you could also say like, hey, it could be low just because we've had zero cardiac output for however long because low cardiac output will also give you bad end titles. Um, yeah, I I guess with the Lucas going and like compressions being done, unless compressions were done just horribly. And then right. like, the, I don't know, it's the drunkest rook of the board, you know, where it's right. like, yeah, <laughs> man, I totally do the work. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it's the volunteer Lucas. Exactly. <laughs> it only shows up and works half the time. Yeah, um, exactly. Gotcha. Uh, which, which, by the way, I want to make, make it clear, like a lot of the volunteers are hardworking people who are addicted to this and are there all the time. Um, yeah, but no, th- this is not the was... good. This is the Kyle <laughs> Lucas. <laughs> it's like, can I be out directing traffic? Exactly. No, you, you have one job, <laughs> Lucas. God damn it! Um, it's a medical call, Kyle. Damn it! <laughs> yeah. No, I. I mean, like, here's the thing. This is uh, they. They have a pretty small downtime. Like, if they had showed up, and it's like I don't know. They were found down, and somebody started working it, and then they tubed them, and it's like unknown downtime. Last seen last night. And, you know, right. for some reason, and then somebody tubed him and got a five. I'd be like, eh, maybe ch- like one, why are we doing this? But like, eh, maybe <laughs> right. check lung sounds. Uh, Cause this probably like if, if the best we're going to get is five and we were in, then there's no point in working this patient yeah. anymore because essentially the body has given up even trying to function and like yeah. s- exchange, you know, cell, uh, gas on a cellular level. Yeah. Um, so I, I would imagine even, you know, even with the downtime, like they're, this patient's end title CO2 would be higher, but you know, that's, that's yeah. just my paramedic brain telling me that. So. Right. So uh, I have one other little critique upon their initial, if we're kind of, let's kind of move into the call itself now, if you're cool with that. Um, yeah. And we'll get to some PIC uh, shit here. Um, but I have one little critique before we even get there. It's going to be on the initial assessment. This is a small potatoes critique, um, but uh, they did, they started off with the sternal rub uh, pretty quick. Uh, start off with a pulse check um, just because, uh, the, the sternal rub, I mean, I, I totally understand like, oh, you, you know, you do LOC, ABC, that kind of stuff. If someone is unresponsive laying down, um, especially like in this situation where, where people are like, hey, like I like something's wrong, uh, go up there and just do the carotid pulse check really quick. And then if you don't get one, who cares about doing a sternal rub? We're going to be doing CPR. Uh, <laughs> you know? So yeah. like, worst I mean, case like, scenario, you're wrong. They have a pulse and they wake up. 
Right. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, like, do, do the pulse check first, uh, just yeah. because I mean, the, the, the sternal rub, all, all you're doing is, is delaying compressions on someone who needs it. Um, but yeah. if you, and here's the thing, if you do a pulse check and then you get one, then do the sternal rub. So yeah, if someone's unconscious on the ground, first thing is pulse check, then, then go from there. So yeah. that's, that's how I feel about it. Um, I- yeah, I'm going to make a nitpicky assessment thing, too, which is so they told me that they sh- they cut the patient's shirt, but they didn't cut like any other part of the like clothing. So the pants, the comfy pants, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a cardiac arrest, when you have enough people and you have enough time, uh, yeah, cut the pants, find out, like, make sure you're not missing anything, you know, like something fucking weird. Um, yeah, you know, just just to say that you you were able to look and you you didn't see anything like soup, you know, you didn't find the gangrenous limb you know, <laughs> like, yeah. oh. I figured it out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I think the knee jerk response to that, that somebody would have, if they were in that situation would just be like, okay, this shit was crazy. I'm not gonna think about cutting the pants off, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I think as we start getting into talking about PIC issues, um, yeah. that that's how having the, you know, the, the, the PIC deal is going to help and get things yeah. like that because we'll, we'll lower the chaos. Um, yeah. And there were, I mean, there were, I, I think, you know, we mentioned already, or you mentioned already, you know, the timing of interventions, you know, the lag time with the IO, the lag time with getting the Epi on board, you know, like th- that sort of stuff. I'm I'm actually going to kind of rope into the PIC bit because I think if the PIC uh, performance were a little stronger here, like those would kind of go away. But I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts with that when we get into that section. Here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, laryngoscopy. Should they have been ready to intubate going in? Because my gut instinct was like, oh, why are you doing this? But on the other hand, if you just have Miguel forceps, like if it's a, oh my God, there's a, you know, peanut butter jelly sandwich down this guy's gullet or, you know, this patient's gullet, like you're not necessarily going into intubate. In that case, you're literally doing the laryngoscopy to get the Miguel's and try and get that out. But should you be ready to intubate? You should. Well, so here, here's kind of the way that, that I, that I would do this. What should have been happening, but I mean, the patient was already being ventilated at at that point. Um, what I would be kind of looking at is like, Hey, like if we've been ventilating the patient, okay. And you know, we're doing these properly. If we have the personnel to have one person holding the mask heel, one person squeezing the bag, like that's, that's ideal. Um, and, and that's going okay. Then get ready to intubate. You know what I mean? Uh, get ready to intubate and then look there. And if you see something, pull it. Um, but get ready to intubate because we're not really struggling with ventilation. You know what I mean? Like we're inflating yeah. the lungs. We're getting chest rise. But if someone's in there and be like, dude, I can't bag. Like I'm getting no chest rise. I'm getting nothing. Then it may be more prudent to be like, okay, just really quick, guys. Great. Give me that laryngoscope, grabbing the McGill's. Uh, you know, push in a breath or try and push in a breath and go ahead and get off. And we take a quick look, see if there's anything blocking, then take a look yeah. like, okay, nope, get on back on it. Try it again. Cause it could just be very constricted. That could be the reason for your block, you know, for not being able to get a bag in. There's tons of different reasons. Uh, or you'd be like, for Oh sure. shit, there it is. Because at that point, if you look in there and you're like, Oh shit, th- there, there is a object blocking the airway, then get it out and go back to BVMing. So you can start pre-oxygenating this patient. Cause we love talking about that word. Um, so we can start getting some yeah. level of ventilation in on this patient patient so go ahead and grab out the fbao have them go back to begging then set your stuff up and go back in because it's more important on this patient that you get them some airway even if it's just clearing their own then um then get your tube set up if there is difficulty bagging if someone's like i can't look i, I am squeezing this thing dude no chest rise ton of resistance yeah. nothing's happening at that point i would say hey like look for it for a foreign body as, as quick as you can because it's imperative 
But if yeah, they're not no. having that case, then I would say, no, let them bag, get your stuff set up. There's no reason to do a quick check. No, that's a really good point. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. And, you know, like maybe that was the case. Maybe they were having trouble and it just wasn't reported. But, uh, you know, like I, I agree with your assertion. I, it, it seems likely that this is sort of an unnecessary step and uh, mm. that should have been ready to go. Um, speaking of innovation, uh, here's something that I don't know the answer to, but I'm going to throw it out because it's important enough. If you have, if you, if you intubate or attempt to intubate the first time and you're not successful, even if you thought you were successful and you're like, oh man, I, next time I'll get it, do something different, make something different about that attempt. Don't do the same thing over and Mm -hmm. over again, because time after time, it, it just doesn't work. Um, it almost works. It, it will rarely work out in your favor and it almost always works against you. And it's really hard to tell when the, like when you think you're right and when you're actually right in that regard. So change something, a tube size, uh, a method, you know, a technique, change something for that second attempt. Again, we Mm -hmm. don't know that they didn't hear, but you know, just it's important. Yeah, Um, I agree. hundred percent. Chris, here's another question for you. What are your thoughts on like administering sodium bicarb in this patient? Should that have happened during this code? I mean, I guess, I mean, I I think it's one of those things where, um, the patient being acidotic is high on the list, especially when they got that CBG of them being high and they're not compliant. So this is, you know, someone who's going to be very likely yeah. to be acidotic. And so, yeah, sodium bicarbonate actually may be uh, a strong consideration for this code. So I think it actually is a fair consideration. Yeah, they ultimately didn't give uh, sodium bicarb. And there were a couple reasons. One of it is that they only have one amp and they were worried about, you know, having to continue on. Um, with it further. Uh, I'd say in that case, even if you just have the one amp, just give it, see if you get Ross back. It might be that it changed that changes later. And uh, you know, that's a complicating factor, but yeah, I think it was still worth uh, giving here. And I know there's some concern that it might not be as helpful as, you know, like we think it is, but again, in this situation, like you don't have much to lose. I would say Uh, that would be my opinion. Yeah, um, I, th- but, I think a, a lot of the main oh. problems when it comes to sodium bicarbonate and acidotic patients comes down the line is that we just end up, it, it can, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, it can make things worse down the line. And, um, but if you're already, again, if you already uh, are sporting the deadest of the dead of the cardiac rhythms, um, then, yeah, I mean, you're not, you're, you, you won't, if you could get them to that point where it's a complication later, that'd be an achievement, you know? Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah. And again, like just cause you don't have more also isn't like, I mean, if it's indicated for them, giving them one amp is going to be better than giving yeah. them zero amps, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think it could have been given. I mean, I, I don't think it would have saved anything, you know, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the, of the call, but I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a consideration for, for this patient when, when acidosis is such a likely contender. Yeah, totally. All right. So, well, Chris, I, I thought you really might like reviewing this call because you had created a matrix at one point about PIC and leadership. And oh, I yeah. thought it might be fun to kind of review the call through that lens. Do you remember the Finkston Oliver leadership uh, thingy majig? I believe what you're referring to is the Finkston Oliver leadership acceptance association curve or Th- that's the, the one. Yeah. Or the, uh, to pull back. There it is. Uh, no, I actually don't remember that at all. Uh, no. Yeah, obviously I do. Uh, yeah. That was back in the, um, I see dead people 
episode, I believe, yes. when I first busted that one out. Yeah, so uh, th- this is actually, I am too proud of this thing, but I am proud of it. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about it, but I want to point out two two quick things, really quick, before we get into uh, the uh, Tupolak. Uh, so there are a couple things that, that the Tupolak will not account for, and that is individual personalities, which it kind of seems like we got to see some come out in this call, right? Like the one guy that's like, yeah. I'm taking a look, you know, when no one ordered an innovation, you know, or King, you know, you got those kind of things going on. Um, that can kind of come out. So chaos ensues and sometimes people just are going on their on their own things when especially like because it sounds like she declared herself pic correct she declared pic in route to the call in route to the call okay so pro tip declared on scene it's harder to do uh on scene but when you have when you have your people there and you're like hey it's me it kind of refocuses because what's going to happen is you're going to be like i'm the pic in route to the call then everyone's going to get there and be rushed by family and seeing a dead body and they're going to forget whatever the fuck you just said on the way in so say it again uh, on on scene um but i want to point out something else the P- the success of the PIC is very important uh, and depends a lot on the person who is in that role. It also depends on other people. So here's kind of my advice to when you're not PIC, respect your PIC. I'm not saying do whatever they say, but make sure that you are actively getting their attention when you need to give information about something you have found. What can absolutely kill a, kill a call is you'll have a PIC who's trying to run a, run a call. They're just not getting the communication from the crew members that they need. The crew members are having side conversations or they'll have a finding that they'll tell the person next to them, but they don't tell the PIC or they will shout the finding out to the group maybe not even shout, but they'll just kind of say it to the group and put it out in the air without making sure the PIC registered it. If you are on a call where there is a PIC, it's on you to make sure you're reporting to that PIC. And that can also help a PIC that's struggling as well. Like if the PIC starts yeah. to struggle, you don't necessarily have to kick them out of the way. But, you know, if your PIC is kind of like good uh, like that, if you're like, hey, we're uh, we're BVMing over here. I'm thinking about an uh, innovation or, hey, we have a lot of resistance when we bag or, you know, I we found this, you know, that that kind of stuff. Make sure you're communicating your findings back to the PIC, not the person next to you. Don't keep it in your head. Don't tell don't just tell the scribe. That happens a lot, too, if there's someone scribing. I've seen that where someone will tell the scribe something but then no one relates it to the PIC who's running the call so anyway (laughs) yeah yeah so I want to get that out of the way before we go into the Tupolak but now it's time for the Tupolak so by the way that's not a made up acronym this is totally something that is legit uh, and just happens to have our names attached to it. Uh, but what it does <laughs> is it, uh, I, I am proud of this because it illustrates the relation of chaos uh, to acceptance of leadership. So in other words, the more chaotic a scene is, the more likely people on that scene are going to accept leadership and, and really want that PIC. So on a scene with high stakes, like a code, uh, the potential chaos is high. When no one is confident enough to provide direction and leadership, the actual chaos is high. Okay. So you have potential chaos and actual chaos. Actual chaos is what you do not want in your scene. And that's what this matrix helps helps with getting rid of actual chaos. Uh, at this junction, responders are more likely to follow any clearly identified leader in just about any direction, uh, right or wrong. So uh, on the other hand, a scene with low stakes has low potential chaos. Even when no one stands up as a leader, responders on scene more are, they'll be less likely to require one to take action as there is little risk in doing so and taking action. Uh, inversely, a scene with high stakes, but 
solid direction, solid leadership uh, presents the same. A leader in direction is present, so another person attempting to switch directions is less likely uh, to be accepted by the crew on the scene. So, uh, <laughs> this matrix presents four possibilities, uh, and here's what they mean to you. So, when you have high potential chaos and low leadership, this is a high actual chaos scene. Stakes are high, there is no direction, and everyone is collectively watching someone die and wanting to stop it. Uh, they are very, very ready to accept a direction. Uh, although the right direction is best, of course, no direction is worse. Uh, so pick any direction. I'm going to put one caveat, any reasonable direction. <laughs> All right, guys, yeah. we're going to Burger King. Uh, but your first step in a chaotic scene needs to be to reduce that actual chaos, right? And so you can do that in two ways. When you walk into a high potential chaos uh, scene, like a code that doesn't have leadership. And the two ways to do that are assigning tasks and making the patient less critical by essentially assigning tasks. So first, determine the immediate life threat by assessing rapidly your ABCs and LOC. In this case, it's being pulseless, okay? Uh, on a trauma, it could be like perfuse bleeding. Uh, here's the thing though, even if you are wrong and you didn't identify the most immediate or most pertinent life threat, chances are what you identified is still going to be substantial and resolving that can make the real threat more evident. That's kind of flight though. Like, isn't Spence? Like how often do we land and we're like, aha, we solved the problem only because the people before us went down the route that we probably would have gone and was wrong. And now they plugged. Yeah. You know, dude, no, totally. That's, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's science in action. You're like, yeah. Hey, we did this and it didn't help. And then we get to do the next thing. And, that's and why I feel that. so bad. I I've innovated so much more since I got the flight job. And it's like, if you've ever watched Brooklyn nine, nine, they have a character on there called the vulture where they will work the whole time trying to solve a case. And he comes in the last minute and gets the caller. I feel like that with flight. We land, don't we sit there like, yeah, we got access. We've been pre-oxygenated space. You're like, great. I'm going to steal your tube. And then, <laughs> yeah, and we're great. Yeah. Uh, you know, anyway. So, yeah. So first, yeah. turn that immediate life threat rapidly, assess your ABCs, and then uh, resolve the biggest threat that you see. Because, again, even if you're wrong, at least you know to either look more or the other one becomes more evident. Uh, then... Uh, you're going to determine the best action to fix that life threat. Maybe it's chest compressions, like in this case, uh, in a trauma, maybe it's a tourniquet. And then assign someone to do that. Okay, so yeah. find the life threat, get the fix for it, and then you say you apply a tourniquet. You start chest compressions, or you start chest compressions, you bag, you assist him with bagging. You assign to get that done. Then reassess your ABCs immediately to start seeing if there's any more issues that are now apparent or any other issues that need uh, attention and then assign someone to that if that's needed and then start considering your second your secondary positions after that so you've got the main life threat is being assessed with like chest compressions and then assign people to that so you're going to talk about like scribe and egress that's kind of down the road but then like IV access if not done uh, for the ABCs already and then someone to go get history so uh, directly check in with your signed roles for status updates uh, if they're not offering you status updates okay because that is one of the things that can happen if you uh, you as the PIC if you have not heard back or if you have not heard any sort of status update from uh, from a crew, they may have either have either not given one, given it to somebody else, or told a scribe, but you need to make sure that you are getting that information and crew, you need to make sure that you are telling it to the PIC. All cases of communication should be closed loop. And what basically what that is, is, uh, okay, you go ahead and give uh, one milligram, one to 10,000 epinephrine IV, and they will copy like this. Copy, 
one milligram, one to 10,000 epinephrine IV. You say it like that. Really get good at it. Be cheesy as fuck, but pretend the AHA is watching and do it. And <laughs> if you can, if yeah. you're able to, yeah, uh, if you can, if you're able to stand back. So the next thing you've got though, so so that was a high potential chaos with low leadership. But let's kind of take a look. Let's look at what a high potential chaos with high leadership look like looks like. And this is going to be a low actual chaos scene, even though the stakes are high. A well established leader that's moving it along uh, is moving it along, and people are following commands. They are unlikely to accept new leadership, especially if things are already working. Uh, but what do you do if the leadership is incorrect and something needs to change? So we got high potential chaos, but low actual chaos because the leadership is moving everyone in a direction, but it's the wrong direction. So now what do you do? Uh, and they haven't realized it. Uh, address the established person in the leadership, the established PIC like so. Acknowledge the current direction. Hey, I see you guys are going down the route of giving medication A. Uh, I would like to, I think we should be giving medication B because I see that C and D are true and medication A would be better treating for E, but that's not the case. Clarify okay. fast. And then once you've suggested a change that may require some, some role changes. So either go back to what you were previously assigned, or if now there's a newly assigned one, do the change of direction. You may be going to that one, but whatever, either way, get back to the role you had. You don't need to step in place of PIC necessarily and then gotcha. participate yeah. yeah and then yeah participate in that change of course uh and if you are the pic remember what pic actually means you do not have to be the smartest in the room you're an information hub so if new information comes in that's valid as the PIC, your job is to turn that info into action, even if it means that you were wrong. This is about the patient. It is not about you uh, or your agency. Fellow responders will always recognize favorably the PIC that can switch direction as needed. So now here's uh, two other cases, uh, low potential chaos with low leadership. And this is also another low actual chaos scene. So crews may be resistant uh, to direction simply because they do not want to be there. Uh, the need for leadership is pretty unlikely when there's low potential chaos. Uh, for example, a fall patient that just needs to be checked out and has no chief complaints. While yeah. a full assessment still needs to be completed, I'm looking at you for your paramedics, uh, <laughs> leadership in this case can actually be reduced to issuing commands that just move the scene along. So use the extra personnel to help get the patient moved uh, or get kits back out to the ambulance or even canceling unneeded resources on calls like this. Uh, yeah. And then the final spot of the matrix you have is a uh, low potential chaos with high leadership, high leadership in this case, uh, will be equated to good leadership. So these are scenes that are low actual chaos that really don't require much of a change in direction. Even if it isn't the direction you would go, if the stakes are low and the patient is still ultimately being helped strongly consider the value of your relationship with the other responders. Uh, but like to be clear, I am not advocating to remain silent if there's something to be said, but yeah. rather I'm saying that things probably do not need to have like the same fervor behind them that you would like put behind somebody trying to cardio over to sepsis patient who has a heart rate of like 140, you know, <laughs> we're not, Dude, we're yeah, not putting no, the brakes totally. on. Um, if you think there's something that could have been done better, the way to follow it up on, on these calls is follow up later. Be like, Hey, I know we did that call the other day uh, or, you know, earlier today. Why did we, do things this way. It wouldn't have been easier to do it the other way. And then they'd be like, Oh shit. Yeah, no good point. Or maybe they won't. Uh, but either way, yeah. like don't, don't make a scene in front of a patient and their family and other responders to try and call somebody out. If it's not, if, if it's really not detrimental or, or going to yeah. cause a big thing. So, there okay. You go. So, 
here we go. We've got the we've got the four categories, two of which have high potential chaos. This is the potential for your mm-hmm. scene to go sideways. Yeah. Uh, with the two leadership styles there. You've got your low leadership and your high leadership. And then we have mm-hmm. the low potential chaos with the same dynamic. Um, gotcha. And so I guess my question is, where do you think this where do you think this call was? Like what's your gist? Because we we did seem to have kind of a low amount of like actual chaos per se but we also had kind of uh, you know a lower amount of low leadership because people were kind of doing their own things yeah you know like that and that's and that's where you know you you wake up you kind of look up from your task and other people have kind of moved on and they're doing their own things so let me define chaos a little bit so i would actually call this a high potential chaos low leadership scene here's here's why and then that may seem like kind of cold um but uh here's why is chaos comes in all forms but basically uh, chaos can be quiet and controlled but if you have people that are kind of going in different directions and you have times that are being missed and you look up and someone's doing something they're not supposed to be doing maybe it's not a loud chaos but it's Mm. still chaotic right Mm. yeah and i'm you know, and unfortunately, my, my matrix doesn't have uh, it's very black and white. It's either low leadership or high leadership. Right. It's a chess so game. There's a, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, there's no medium leadership uh, on, on, on the matrix, you know. So, um, yeah. So while, while, while I feel that um, I feel that the queen actually does have good leadership skills, I think there were some challenges in this scene that made it difficult for that leadership to really take flight. Now, you got to understand when we're saying things like low leadership versus high leadership, what I'm not saying is that there's a poor leader. What I'm saying is that for whatever reason, the leader isn't able to be effective. And sometimes there are things that are that would challenge any leader, no matter how good they are. It doesn't necessarily sure. mean that, that, that they're terrible or bad or anything like that. And no, so I'm glad you clarify that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so I would actually call this a high potential chaos, low leadership uh, scene that resulted in some actual high uh, chaos. And so I think, so what do we do to fix that? And uh, let's kind of talk about what the queen had, um, what the queen had kind of walking into this. So when the queen first got in, the queen had um, themselves, the bishop, right? That was their paramedic partner. Yep. And the pawn, which was the EMT. So we had the queen, yeah. the bishop, and the pawn. All right, just the three of them. How long after they arrived did they get additional resources? Uh, ooh, that's a good question. It took uh, at least, I think, by the third or fourth round. They had the third round. I think somebody showed up. The okay, the, two gotcha. medi- the, the medic and the uh, and the knight showed up. Gotcha. The knight. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, perfect. And so, and and then it was just the five of them, right? Okay, the, the the entire call. All right, so so they've got a little while by themselves, and this is kind of one of those things where um, this is going to be hard to have some good leadership here because you're going to be looking at having to do in, in interventions, and like we've talked about, doing interventions as a PIC is like dunking your head underwater. You dunk your head underwater while you're doing the intervention, only to pop back up, and everything that's been going on above the surface, you're kind of blind to. So yeah. this is going to be difficult. So. They walk in, there's the three of them, they do a sternal rub, which whatever, and then they check a pulse, there's no pulse. And then um, the bishop goes, I'm trying to remember all the damn chess pieces. The bishop, <laughs> uh, again, thankfully was on the correct color square so they could actually be effective, uh, immediately yes. jumps into chest compressions. Now you gotta understand that's an ALS personnel doing a BLS skill, which is going to have to happen on this call. We can't get around that because yeah. we're actually ALS heavy in this case. Uh, yeah. So. 
that happens. And then we, uh, we assigned our pawn to the pads and then the queen starts off on airway. Correct. Yes. Okay. Here's what I would have flipped. I would have actually flipped and had, um, I would have had the pawn bag or possibly had the paramedic bag because bagging is actually difficult to do. Right. And so you don't want your, your day one person, your day one call one person to be uh, attempting that. I know it's a BLS skill, but it's harder than we give it credit for. So I would actually put the paramedic on bagging. I would have the EMT do chest compressions. And then I would have uh, myself as the queen. I would go ahead and throw the pads on. And here's why I would do that. Uh, The main reason being is that, uh, well, the, the first thing is both bagging and even pads. I mean, they're sticky and simple, but even both of those things, like there's experience will help those things versus pushing on a chest. I, yeah. I, I think for me, the, the differentiating is like, if you start CPR, well, then that is, you don't have room to think about other things. Like you have to do CPR, you, right. you know, like you have to do it to do it well. You have now, to when think you're about saying it. CPR. Are you specifically talking about chest compressions, Compre- chest compressions? Okay. But if you are in bagging, you go, you might think of your, you might think yourself in a spot where you're like, okay, I only have to like deal with two seconds every. So every 30 mm-hmm. seconds I have to stop. But that's the thing is you actually do have to keep track of the 30 seconds. And then you actually have to like detract right. you know, distract yourself and focus on delivering those breaths and so you, you that is, in effect you're dunking your head underwater yeah. for a couple seconds every 30 seconds and that that's really distracting so i i totally agree with your your and then point you have catch-up like, time after you get your you know it's, it's not like you yeah. come back up and you're up to date you got to catch up yeah and so yeah. i totally agree with your point of like yeah dealing with the pads and then being able to kind of put you in a spot where you can step back yeah. Um, and, and that's the nice thing there. about the pads is yeah. like, cause, and these pads did have troubles on them, but instead it's going to be you, the experienced paramedic dealing with that right away with more tricks up your sleeve than the other guy sitting there for, uh, believe me for the first few minutes, he's like, I am clearly doing this wrong. It's me. It's not the pads. It's fucking me. Cause I'm new. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> Versus if yeah. you've done it before and you're a paramedic, you'd be like, what the fuck's wrong with these pads? Give me new pads. <laughs> like that would happen in two seconds, you know? Yeah. So anyway, so that's how I, I would have changed that up. That would give you a chance to kind of step back and really get the call rolling. Uh, and then, you know, jump and then jump on the IO. So here's kind of the other thing too, is let's kind of move to the next step. So in this patient, if we're following that AHA algorithm, we've got someone who's doing a BLS airway, which that's just going to be the case for a little bit. I think you're just going to have to accept that you're going to be doing that. One thing that could happen though, is if you're doing airway and you've got these three people, it might be worthwhile to just go ahead and have that guy's like, Hey, give your two breaths and then just shove an eye gel down there and go right back to giving breaths again when it's ready. Sure. Yeah. That, that, that I think would be the, uh, the, the route that I would go and then airways out of the way and you're done. And then we can start focusing on getting, getting an IO, you know, and, and, uh, and doing that. So, uh, yeah. you can, now there's a couple things that you might want to do. I think in this case, and I know normally I'm the kind of guy that's like, if you're PIC, stay the fuck away from airway. In this case, once my partner dropped that eye gel, I may take the BVM at that point and have them go start the IO because the IO is going to require your concentration in terms of setting it up, finding the site, and it's going to take you out of commission for a minute. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I 100% agree with what you said, Spencer, about bagging. You still have to, you still have to focus every couple seconds to bag. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's still there, but that is something that can be easier managed. I feel, and you would still be able to have at least a visual look at what is going on with the rest of the call while the IO is getting set up. So in that case, me personally, I would opt to just squeeze a bag after an IGEL has been placed and have my partner go do that IO. Yeah. 
No, I think that's totally a fine, uh, you know, a, a fine yeah. trade off at that point. Um, I agree. Cause then you're, you're again, you're putting, you're kind of putting yourself in a spot where you can, you can still like, once the mm-hmm. Nigel's in, you don't have to worry about like trying to hold a seal along with right. that. You just, you know, your, your job essentially becomes focus on delivering just enough air to get chest rise. Right. Um, and that's, and that's it. That's a much simpler job. Um, I do yeah. want to say one thing that they did really well is they went, oh fuck, we need help. And they called in pieces. They did. You know, yeah. Great job. Like really actually. Early on. And, 100%. Yeah. Good call, Spence. So yeah, that, that's a great call. And here's the other thing too, that, that you could also do uh, with your, uh, when you're bagging is you're only be bagging for a little bit. Cause here, cause here's my next step. I'd be bagging until that IO is in. And then I'm putting him right back on bagging again. Hey, you got the IO in? Awesome. Come back here and bag. Cause now, now the only thing I'm going to be doing is drugs and defib if defibs even needed, yeah. which in this case it wasn't. And of all those things, like just, you know, grabbing the pre-filled epi syringe and just squeezing it in. Yeah. That that's a pretty low distraction thing, but I'm also going to point out one caveat, all the things that I'm saying, this is me telling you from my experience as a paramedic as to what is easy for me to do. It, I, I also think it would, it would be a reasonable answer if the queen came back and said, no, actually like, uh, you know, if they're maybe they're, you know, if there's a complication with the airway or something like that, or, or if the sure. is maybe more focused on that, they're like, you know, actually, I'm really good at IOs. Like I can do a tibial IO really quick. I, I feel personally, I could keep my concentration better if I did that, then do that. The goal yeah. of what I'm trying to say though, is make sure that you're giving yourself things to do that they can be done quickly and aren't going to like take up your time and yeah. take your least experienced person and put them on the thing that's not going to fuck up, which is chest compressions. Yeah. I, what I would say is I think the goal is to get yourself in a spot where you can can stand back the fastest and right. kind of like observe what's going on and request information from people. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think uh, made this difficult, and this is a tendency that I have, so I'm, I might have picked up on it. And if I picked up on it on in, in unfairly in getting the story, mm. then I apologize in advance. But I, I have this tendency when I see somebody struggling with stuff, I'm like, I'm not doing anything important at this moment. Let right. me help them. And me I will too. jump in and help them. And then I'm like, oh, fuck. My job is actually to stand back and like keep the timing going and request like, hey, check in with them. Like, hey, how are things going? Do you need help? Do you need me to assign another, you know, because at a certain point, they do have enough people up there. If you have three people, you know, like yeah. working on clearing out an airway after the Lucas is doing CPR, then like you have now you have resources. You no longer right. really should be in a position where you have to dedicate yourself. Cause like you said, if you don't have enough resources, well then yeah, like everybody's got to yeah. do some work. And as the PIC, you should be trying to do the, uh, the work that gets you back to a PIC position the fastest so yeah. that you can focus on, okay, where are we at in this call and where do we need to go? What are mm-hmm. the next steps? What information do I need? You know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, this- and that, and, yeah. And that can really bog you down, I guess, is my, th- is my yeah. point is like, if you jump in and do this stuff, then you, you just end up being behind, even though you're, right. you know, you're like, they're like, wow, so helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're, yeah. Um, yeah. and so, the, and, and once we kind of like, if we, and if we'd run this call kind of the way you and I are talking about it, it now kind of becomes a different call when, when the additional resources do show up. Right. I mean, so yeah. you essentially get three more people, you get Lucas and then the knight and the king. Um, so yeah. Uh, Lucas comes up there. Lucas now has your chest compressions. Your EMT is free. Now you have EMT, Knight, King, and you. 
and so like really have these, these extra resources, the airways kind of handled at this point, to be honest with you, unless we're really having troubles with that eye gel and we're not seeing rise, we're not getting entitled. We have some reason it's not working. Yeah. I'll leave it alone. I mean, yeah. I don't, there's not, it doesn't need your focus right now. I, I totally understand there's going to be paramedics out there that are like, yeah, but a tube would be better. You don't have the resources or time for that right now. You got to let that go and just be happy with the airway you have and leave it alone. Yeah. Um, and now what you can do is you've got, uh, you, you can take, let's see, cause King's, King's the other paramedic, right? Yes. King is yeah. the other paramedic. Perfect. King, you're going to be doing drugs. Uh, well, you're going to be giving to the patient anyway. Uh, I don't care if you get high, just not on duty. Uh, you know, King, uh, you know, like you're going to be on drugs. Uh, I, again, I want to applaud the queen for being like, hey, Knight, this is a family member, you know, why don't you go work on yeah. HPI, getting that stuff. And that's perfect. And now you have uh, an EMT just kind of chilling. And so the EMT, uh, the Lucas is doing compressions. The EMT can take over bagging for a bit. Now you've got another paramedic to do something else, you know? So uh, the EMT could scribe, uh, although again, I don't know if I'd want day one, call one guy writing stuff down because Lord knows what you're going to get written down. Um, so it might be better <laughs> to have somebody scribe, uh, you know, and, and, and doing that. And then, uh, you know, you could also tell night, hey, once you get HPI and they come back up with your HPI, reassign them to something like egress. Start yeah. working on that, you know. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I think, you know, with the Lucas and the King in place, like you just have extra hands for days and you can really stay on top of stuff. So yeah, yeah. I, th I think it would have been a bit uh, different call. Yeah. But that being said, like, again, like there's definitely some credit due here. Oh, totally. Yeah. This is, this is nitpicky to, it's, mm -hmm. you know, to the highest degree. And of course, like we weren't, you know, as we said, we weren't there. You know, like we yeah. weren't there to experience this call and experience all the, you know, like the, the highs and lows and mm -hmm. those, you know, like the, those are, those add their own flavor of dynamics. So one of the things that I really, really liked about this call was the yeah. emphasis on talking with the family and like making, really taking the time and effort to make sure that, you know, they were accounted for because, you know, like mm -hmm. this is the situation, the patient is dead. They yeah. are no longer a patient anymore. Right. Now the people that we need to care about are the family members. And frankly, and this is, the family oh, members and frankly, the family members are, are are the patient at this point. Because like we have to take care of them uh with the same yeah. fervor that we would take care of anybody else. Uh but we don't know how to do that a lot. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, and that's, dude, that's it exactly, is that I, I don't know how much training you got on telling people bad news, um, uh, but I got zero yeah, from I was school. An, I was an intern, uh, and I got zero uh, as well. I mean, I got, like, the general stuff, so we, I had to take, like, a death and dying class as part of a prerequisite, and there was oh, some yeah. general stuff in there, like, I mean, I'm sure we'll touch on this, because I believe this holds true today, um, and the only thing I remember from that class is, like, don't use terms like... And I'm going to guess you're going to bring some actual info to this because I'm not, I have my own system that I've developed. And so I'm kind of curious to hear oh, what you yeah. have to say, because I'm probably going to be learning right along with listeners on this one. But the, the, one of the main things that, that I think has helped, and I, I hope that you're not going to tell me, yeah, research actually shows you're wrong. Um, because I've, I've told this to a lot of people. Um, but I, yeah. I don't, I was taught in this death and dying class, uh, that to be very, to use the terms like dead, you know, be very clear about, you know, the patient yeah. is deceased. The patient has died. Like those kind of things. Don't use things like they've moved on to a better place and I've derailed your uh, your lesson. So no, but it, you bring up a really good point is like, I think that is I, I walked away with that uh, when I first came out into the field, because that was in our protocol book. It said, hey, don't use, you know, like, don't soften the language. You know, yeah. don't use euphemisms. Be very clear. And I went like, well, that's fucking that seems counterintuitive. Like. 
you know, like, I'm sorry, your mother is dead. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> how I was imagining it. You know, it's, but yeah, like, um, it, it, that's the, th- and that's the problem is we kind of, we transition from like, Hey, like, you know, like, I don't know, my feelings shut down cause I'm working CPR and now that's done. And I don't have things I can do to try and like, there's nothing we like, there's, th- we approach medicine, like, how can we fix this or how can we stabilize this? And the problem here is there is no fixing this. You can't fix the fact that somebody has died yeah. and that you now have to tell, like, you can't fix that and you can't help them in in the same way that we you know like there's no band-aid for like i'm sorry your mother's died here you go like there's not so that is that is sort of the hard part and it really is the piece that like people really struggle with because we just we don't know what to do you know we're very much like yeah i uh i don't want to feel i like i don't want to I don't want to tell you this. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in this situation because it's so uncomfortable because there's no fixing it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think we all kind of want to try and fix it at, you know, mo- most of us, many of us, I don't know. <laughs> so um, let's talk about giving bad news. Yeah. Um, and I, I, first off, I got to give a shout out to another podcast who covered this topic and its importance to EMS. And that, that podcast is the recess room. Um, the hosts, they're engaged in both like hospital and pre-hospital medicine, and they review papers and topics like related to emergency medicine. And this topic came up in their November, uh, 2021 episode, and it's called breaking bad news. Hmm. I thought it was going to be about Walter White, yep, but it turns out it's not. Yeah. Thanks. Let's cook. <laughs> yes, we got to do an episode. So, we got to do an episode where our faces end up on, on, on that shit. Okay. That's well, it. That's, it won't be this one because I feel like the chess, the chess is such no, a, I, a, a theme, but yeah, yeah it, <laughs> but all right, we'll find a crystal meth episode mm-hmm. and, uh, and there it'll be. All right. Um, yeah, so on this episode, they discuss a topic that doesn't get a lot of attention in our field for some reason, and that is how to break bad news. So real quick, in this episode, they highlight the lack of importance EMS education places uh, on this part of our job, and and they go into like why it actually is worth providing real formal education on. Um, they looked at a study done by Campbell, which examined burnout rates between paramedics in the UK from those who had to deliver bad news and those who didn't. And they also looked at the differences between the medics who, when they did give bad news, did they have any training, like formal training, re-education, any of that stuff is that, you know, continuing education, yeah. not re-education um, on that subject. And it turns out that Having to tell people that a loved one, like a child or a parent, has died is is fucking awful. I don't know if you knew this, Chris, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, but the only thing that makes it worse for both the provider and for the family members getting the bad news is not having any good idea on how to deliver that news. So the Recess Room podcast, they recommended and they broke down a few different approaches that practitioners could use. Of course, they all have excellent acronyms to help you remember the steps, but I'll focus on one for the episode, which I felt I could use out in the field. But, you know, you guys can go check out that podcast and you should and see like about the others. Uh, These guys do a really good job. The acronym or mnemonic I prefer uh, to use for this systematic process is something called grieve underscroll ing isn't it underscore underscore is it underscore i call it it an underscore i'm pretty sure it's an underscore 
I'm going to go with underscore. Uh, okay. That seems like the more correct answer. Yeah, yeah I so. Think it's so. grieve underscore ing. All right. Now, appropriate disclaimer, every situation is different and All we're right. dealing with humans and Hang often- on. I'm super sorry. Uh, I had to Google underscore and or and uh, I, I Googled underscore and Google just says, yeah, we're going to share results for underscore. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. Basically, <laughs> Look, I don't know what D&D shit you're talking about there, <laughs> but uh, here in grammar All right. land. All right. All go, right. go ahead. <laughs> All right. Back to the disclaimer. Every situation's different and we're dealing with humans and often dealing with humans in re- really dynamic circumstances. There, So there isn't going to be a one size fits all thing. But I think this mnemonic could be really helpful in recognizing the big pieces that you want to try and hit when you're delivering bad news. So let's dive into it. The first two steps of grieving or grieve under underscore ing. There we go. (laughs) Nice. uh, Are kind of a pregame type thing. So the first one is G gather. And this is where you want to kind of gather your shit together. You know, you want to gather the facts of the call. You want to set yourself up so that you're not going to be interrupted by a ton of people. Cause like, you don't want to get like, all right, so guys, I want to tell you about, hold on. <laughs> yeah. But phone call, like you don't want that. You want no. to be able to just be able to dedicate yourself to this task. Um, so yeah, get your shit together, get it on one bag. And, you know, gather it. Yeah, nice. All your shit. Uh, And also, you want to gather the people that you need to deliver the bad news to, like, you know, the important family members that may or may not be present on scene. It might be worth if, you know, like a child or, you know, a, a parent is coming, like, wait to deliver the bad news so you don't have to do it again. Anyway, so the pre-gaming pieces, make sure you have like the facts of the call, you have yourself set up and you have all the people that you need. Right. And then you want to make sure you have all the resources. And that's the, we've done guh and now we're doing er (laughs) for grief. And so, yeah, R is resources. Make sure you have the support you think you might need that you think they might need. You know, like in your, if you're in a hospital, you can call chaplains. I guess in EMS, you can call chaplains too. Some people have that, like some places have that service. Um, but like there's phone numbers for other services, the police, if you're worried about safety, etc. So make sure that you have kind of all the stuff you need to carry on with the call or with this task. And then once you're ready, we move on to I and I is introduce. This is where you say who you are and what your role is in providing care to their loved one. And by the way, this is pro tip. Use the patient's name and then ask the family to identify who they are. Don't assume because boy, that can get awkward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Um, you can ask what they already know, but the recommendation I've read on this, like from a different doctor's deep dive into this tool says like, Hey, don't take too long on catching them up if they don't know. Um, that's by the way, that's Dr. Sarah Sanders, uh, discussing a peer reviewed study like that featured this tool. Um, yeah. So, you know, introduce, say who you are and then kind of see where they're at and what they know. Um, and then E we move on to E E is educate them. So educate them on the events leading up to the declaration of death. Use plain language. I know we like our you know fancy medical jargon. Um, fun fact: my mom told me she doesn't listen to the show because we use too much medical jargon. Um, she doesn't listen to the show because she doesn't like your voice. <laughs> that's 
Yeah. That is also fair. She says when she hears you talk, it underscrolls her hatred for you. <laughs> Well, I have um, just so many um, feelings um, about that. Um, so anyway, well, guess I'm editing yeah. some more there. You know, you do have that power, don't you? You do um, have that. Do I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Barely you do. Yeah. So the recommendation is use brain bleed instead of intracranial hemorrhage. That's uh, good. You know, like in this episode, you know, uh, the queen said we're doing CPR. So we are breathing and moving blood for her. Uh, you know, we're giving medications. You don't have to say like, Hey, we're, uh, we're given three milligrams of Epi one to 10,000. They're, yeah. they're, they're just going to be like, what the fuck does that mean? And that brings us to V underscore gotcha. V underscore is verify underscore. This means that verify their family member is dead. And to be clear, this isn't like, hold on, guys, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go check oh, man. real quick. <laughs> mm. <laughs> all right. Now that I've told you all this, hang on. Okay. Yeah. Everything I said before still stands. Oh, wow. The, I know what they mean here is. This is where you tell them the patient has died. And like Chris said, don't use euphemistic language like moved on. All mm -hmm. the advice that I've ever seen is say very clearly that they died. Uh, and the best advice mm -hmm. here is also to make they died be the last thing that you say. And then you underscore, meaning give them space, meaning mm -hmm. Shut the fuck up, Spencer. Don't continue to talk because everything's now awkward. And uh, boy, this silence is uncomfortable. Yeah. This is where you just let them feel how they're going to feel about this. Yeah. So, um, and here's the thing is they need it. If you tell them stuff after dead, then like they're probably not going to listen to you anyway. It's very so true. Just give them the space. And just be present and be okay with that long silence. And then after an appropriate amount of time has passed, you know, and, and this is, this is the thing. It's situation dependent. Then yeah. you can inquire if they have questions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like, Hey, do you guys have any questions? Uh, yeah. I, is there anything I can, I can tell you, you know, if, if you need more, I'm here. Um, and, and be open and honest when you answer, uh, if they do ask questions, including acknowledging what you don't know. And here's a tidbit that Dr. Sanders, uh, weighed in on with, and I thought it was really good, which is don't speculate because it will be so tempting to speculate. And I totally know I've speculated the shit out of a ton speculate of things. On what specifically? On what caused them to die or why they oh, died or why saying. this happened. Gotcha. I thought you meant like speculate you know, on the family members' feelings or speculate on what questions they may have, that kind of stuff. But yeah, you mean, okay, speculate on like yeah. why they died. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And, and Dr. Sanders doesn't like specifically give reasons why we shouldn't, but I, I it, it makes sense to me because mm -hmm. if we tell someone we think it's one thing that, you know, like, oh, it, you know what, it's probably that high you know high blood sugar that killed the patient yeah. and then it ends up being something else that could be really jarring to the survivors when they like it could kind of cause a re-trauma it could also make them like, lose faith in your that that everything was done yeah but and also keep in mind though like they will ask and you need yeah. to be prepared for people to ask i've been asked that you know what do you think um you know what what happened like why did they die they're gonna ask they're gonna want that that answer um yeah what I've done in the past is I've just told them what I've, what, what we found, you know, like, uh, yeah. and, and the, and my 
my big response is usually, what led up to today's event? I don't know. But what we found was we found somebody with no pulse. We, these are the things we did to get a pulse back. And, you know, and that's that's kind of how I've gone with it before. It's just tell them what you have found. And they may ask like, but why, why do you think they lost the polls? And, and you can very squarely say, I, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, it's uh, when yeah. someone loses a pulse, there's a, a gamut of treatments that, uh, that we give to get the pulse back. Um, and there's certain things we look at and we try and fix those things, but we tried to fix everything we could and nothing was fixable today. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- th- yeah, that that's perfect. I like that. Um, yeah, where, where I get in trouble is, you know, that I go like, well, their blood sugar's high. And then I start going into this whole, like, well, then they would have had to mm-hmm. become acidotic. They would have had to, like, these things would have had to happen. And I, I could be, you know, like, that's the thing is like, you might think you're right. You're totally fucking off base. And then like right. you said, it, it, it calls into question your performance later when it turns out like you were way off base. Oh know? yeah. So yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, All right. So that is inquire. Let's move on to nuts and bolts. This is the N uh, of the grieving uh, acronym nuts and bolts. This is where we transition into the next steps. This is the forward thinking um, from this call. Um, So what happens or what do they need from here? And this really might be the best spot if you have like a chaplain service to step in because these people will be one, they're usually far better at this kind of shit than, you know, like we are, but they also tend to have like more resources and more services. And they're more aware of the things that this patient, like the, the family is going to need after the patient has deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or, or like the medic in this call explaining what's going to happen next. Hey, police are going to come out here. The medical examiner will probably come out because this patient's a young person and they'll, you know, want to know what, what happened here. This will be investigated. Um, they're going to ask you questions. These are standard questions. Uh, that's that's a really good that's a really good thing to do so that they know you know what what's coming next and so they're not further surprised by that um offering to show the body making sure that it's you know like in some sort of presentable um again form. yeah don't retry yeah. somebody you know yeah that's that's, that's another good thing to do because people often want that closure they need to see that the person that they love is gone right um and that's that's a really important piece um, and then the last step is give. And if it's appropriate, you can give them your contact information for like you or your service. I, I'm more of the, like, if you want to contact my service, here's um, the services phone number. But, oof. uh, I, I go, go, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, I, 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 I share the same sort of, uh, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I want to give anybody my home phone. You know what I mean? Like my personal cell phone number. I would actually make the statement of, um, don't, um, you're not, that's that don't, um, you, uh, okay. If you are a chaplain and you do this professionally and or, or, or you are a grievance counselor, like, like this is something you do and have training in, and this is your job, then by all means, and you have a number that you frequently give to p- patients and by all means step into that role if you are not don't because there's a yeah. couple things because you are going to be putting yourself 
potentially in a position to handle this person's grief, which you are not qualified to do. So don't do this. Don't give your own. Sorry, I, I, I maybe no, I'm, no, no. Too I'm glad you said something this, because, but like, I, I do not. Yeah, <laughs> just just my my flat out advice is I'm not going to be soft about it unless that is your job. Do not make it your job. Yeah. So yeah, no, I yeah, I, I agree. This was I again. These have far ranging like this isn't just for ems this is like you know there's hospitalists there's you know whatever that this can apply to and in those settings maybe that's a different thing maybe it's okay in those settings and this one i i side with chris um yeah yeah i i think yeah don't don't put yourself in that situation if they need to contact if they have questions or whatever if you want to offer that you can you know offer them your services phone number you know like if there were whatever but better yet just offer them phone numbers the phone numbers that you have like from your county your you know your service area that might be of use to them um you know like i don't know morgue <laughs> chaplain's phone the chaplain, number the chaplain yeah, I think the be. chaplain's phone number would probably be the best one that comes to mind i, I don't know i've met <laughs> a lot of people who work at the morgue and they're not good until like that's why they work with their yeah. bodies funeral funeral home is really what uh, i was going for funeral but, home yeah because yeah, they have people there yeah. who yes yeah just yeah. Uh, <laughs> funeral just home God. don't <laughs> let's go with funeral home over morgue uh <laughs> but if anything else if you're not if you don't have any phone numbers or anything, then this is where you can give them your sympathies and exit. I yeah. am so sorry for your loss. And then Peace. you get to leave. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think having a framework. Ap- I, I really like having like a framework approach. <laughs> yeah, don't say peace. Peace. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I do occasionally get stuck or I feel like I tend to over explain shit. Um, and so it's nice to have somebody like this framework to help get through the hard times. Yeah. Uh, you know, those hard moments where you're like, okay, hold on. There's a path that I need to take that gets me through this and out of it to the other side. Um, and grieve underscore <laughs> underscore ing, uh, is a really good one. I think, I think it could be really useful. So, um, anyway, I, I thought that the medic on this call did like, did a really good job without actually having any formal education on this or I think you know, they like did training. Great, actually, yeah. I'm thinking back to what was said and I think they did a really good job in caring for the family in this. And of course there's the added weight of the fact that one of your coworkers, uh, is somehow related or involved with these people, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I commend, uh, the queen on the, their performance in this regard. Uh, so yeah. with that, everybody, uh, thanks again for listening to yet, uh, another episode. I kind of want to summarize our lessons a little bit in this one. We'll start with the PIC, the most important part of this entire lesson, not this crap that Spencer threw in at the end, um, but <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, just remember, remember that, that being a PIC, that first and foremost, you are a conduit for information uh, and you take in information and you give it out in forms of assignments. And one of the best ways to reduce chaos is by identifying that life threat right up front and then start assigning roles to treat that first life threat. Because even if that's not the worst life threat, if that's the only one you have found and you need to get the thing moving in a direction, start moving in the direction and you'll start, even if you're wrong, at least 
process of elimination is going to help, especially the flight crew when they come and land and take the uh, take the win from you. So there's <laughs> that, you know, um, flight crews are are all are, are like innovations uh, themselves. Uh, way back when, before we had all the awesome devices like the bougie, uh, one of the common methods is, just, hey, if you miss the first tube and you actually put in the esophagus, just leave it there because it plugs the, the wrong hole. Then the next person can come in and tube the only hole that's left. Well, a lot oh, of yeah. times that's what we run into as flight medics is that, uh, yeah, someone else has already plugged the wrong path for us. Not that we wouldn't have. We probably would have. But uh, now we don't have to because you did. Anyway, yep. so I digress. <laughs> Get the call moving. Uh, and remember, when you have high potential chaos, but low leadership, everybody is very willing to accept the leader. So don't worry about stepping on toes. Uh, remember that matrix that I uh, totally did not make up. Uh, and put my name on and and Spencer's name on. Uh, it's real. But remember that. Uh, and of course, when it comes down to, uh, you know, grieving patients, uh, an acronym like the one we listed above is super helpful. And it's a really important part uh, of the whole process. I want to add one more thing that Spencer didn't cover. And that is uh, kind of a brief discussion of providing false hope. And there is a lot of opinions about this. And I kind of want to make my opinion on, on the process of false hope known because sometimes the process of adding false hope when there is none isn't helpful to the process of grieving. And, but yeah. sometimes we, we can kind of take this uh, to an extreme at times. Now, real quick, Chris, mm -hmm. can you clarify what you mean by false hope? I, I think a more common scenario is let's say you have someone that you're going to be transporting and they're not, Definitely going to die, but the probability is high. Saying things yeah. like they're going to make it, they're going to be okay when there's a good chance they may not be uh, is providing false hope. Okay. Perfect. Now, what you can do is you can be very realistic. And uh, one, one paramedic uh, that I have learned from that planted it in a really good way, we, we're unfortunately, we were working a pediatric uh, code um, that we got Rosk on, but it, it had it had been a while yeah. and, it, and the patient didn't end up passing. But the way uh, they described it is, uh, you know, we'd gotten a pulse back and the mother got really excited and they were actually in the front of the ambulance and the, my paramedic partner leaned forward. Hey, he, the person driving told me about the conversation later. I couldn't hear it at the time, but that's neither here nor there anyway. Yeah. Uh, and what, what he told, told the mother is like, Hey, you know, like getting a pulse back, you know, is good, but we, there's more steps to take. Like uh, he's been down for a long time. Uh, even though his heart's beating, he's got a young heart that's beating. We really need to see how his brain's doing. And we just don't know that right now. And so he said, you know, we, we have found a path out of the forest, but we're still in the middle of it. And so, yeah. you know, it's, oh, yeah. it, it was a great way to put it. And, you know, and he was telling them, you know, we're doing everything. We're giving it our best shot, but there are, there are more steps to go. And that I'm like, and yeah. that's realistic because on one hand, like, it is good news that the child got a pulse back. Okay. You know, it, it, it is worth, it, it is appropriate to have a feeling about that. And they're going to get that news no matter what you do. And they're going to have a feeling that, okay, thank God there's a pulse back. Like that's better. They're going to have that feeling no matter what, um, you know? And so what you don't, you don't need to go the opposite direction and be like, yeah, they're still probably going to die. Like you don't have to say that. That's not yeah. what I'm saying there. Now, yeah. I, I also want to do, want to kind of address another thing, something that I've seen in the field, typically not with pediatrics, um, but do not prematurely end treatments or end a code 
with the excuse of, well, I don't want to give anyone false hope by transporting this patient, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there are times where transporting a patient is not appropriate and they're going to be dead. This is a great example of that. Um, I think transporting this patient probably would have been uh, unnecessary and wouldn't have helped with the grieving process because, again, they were in the deadest of the dead algorithms or the deadest of the dead rhythms um, for (laughs) for quite a while. Uh, The crew, you know, they'd given four rounds of epi. They've been doing CPR the entire time. They're not able to fix it. You know, Um, it's just it's not happening. So transferring uh, this patient would have been something else. But also make sure that you're not slow rolling a call just because you think uh, it's not going to happen, particularly when you're talking about like unexpected uh, deaths, because there is a certain part that can make grieving easier when you can walk away with the knowledge that, you know what, everything was done. Yeah, I, everything that could have been done um, was was done, and I know we're really quick sometimes. To be like, but I don't want to give false hope to a family either. You don't have to give false hope. You can be realistic, but you know what? Swing for the fence. I mean, if it's yeah. one of those things where, especially in unexpected deaths, swing for the fence. Be realistic with the family about what you're doing. That hey, I'm swinging for the fence, um, but you know, you guys need to be prepared that this this may not work. Uh, yeah, you know, but we're, we're going to try. And I, I think that goes back to the, the, you know, like, and this is something we brought up in the episode, which is setting expectations because yes. what you don't want is people to be surprised. Mm-hmm. You don't want people to be surprised that, you know, like they're like, but you said they were going to be okay. Right. You, you know, like you want them to understand like, Hey, we are doing everything we can, but this patient is really, really sick. And they, there's a very good chance that they will not survive this transport. You know, yeah. um, and, and that's that's totally OK. I've had those conversations. And you know what? When the patient doesn't survive the transport, the family still thanks you in that situation because they know they knew going in that it wasn't going to be, you know, like, oh, OK, good. You guys are here to fix this. Cool. You know, they're like, oh, oh, God, this is still this is still bad. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Anyway, uh, hey guys, yeah. thanks. Uh, we're good. <laughs> uh, Go I, I think we've had enough awkwardness uh, in this call. Oh, and one other thing that this episode did a really good job. It really underscrolled the need to have a bag that can carry your oxygen tank. <laughs> it underscrolled for sure. Yeah, it underscrolled the need for a bag to carry your fucking oxygen tank because. <laughs> I think I've doubled down on this one too hard because I'm going to admit I went on that rant earlier with very little thought into it. Um, What I loved is that it almost went. I was like, boy, we are really going hard. And then it kind of disappeared. And I was like, all right, Chris, put it back in the bag only to pull it out at the most delightful fucking unexpected time. That was the best part. (laughs) <laughs> and now it's here again. But, you know, but yeah, it's one of those things where I what I'm waiting for, I'm, like, I'll be dead honest. I'm waiting to get my ass handed to me on this. I am waiting for someone to come back and be like, uh, hey, Dick, and then have a really good logical reason for having it outside. I'm going to have to be like, oh, fuck. Uh, but anyway, so because uh, I didn't give this any thought, really. I just I just thought of the times where it's been a struggle for me. And I've been like fucking bottle now i'm carrying it there's no place to put it on the gurney uh anymore because like the gurney has limited flat spots and like and then somebody's like oh well you know the gurneys that have the thing in the foot like that's great until you're loading him to a helicopter and you're like yeah i gotta get him over that now and now it's just something else that i'd have to move uh, but i guess if it's connected to the patient i guess it's a different story so i'm gonna have to cut that so i can sound better but anyway um <laughs> yeah i just i fucking i fucking hate it i hate it like have a place <laughs> If you want to attach it to a gurney, that's okay too. Because if if you're going to be bringing the gurney on on every call and you attach it to the gurney, that's fine. Because you're not 
adding any additional work, but just the free floating fucking thing sucks. And don't put it on the apron of the gurney where you could put other things. That's just taking up space that doesn't need to be taken up. Like a foot mount, great. Head mount, great. Out of the way, it doesn't take up space for other stuff. It's coming on a piece of equipment you're already getting in. Great, put it on the gurney. But for fuck's sake, do not just have one of those nylon strap sleeves on it and then tote that in, you... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, go ahead and check out our content on GuardianCME.com. Uh, there is an inherent delay in uh, when a new episode gets up to GuardianCME.com, but you can go there to get all of your continuing education needs uh, for the low, low price of free 93. In other words, no money at all. You can now get all, all of your continuing education hours from entering and our EMT online, <laughs> uh, all 60 can be done there. It used to be capped at 35, uh, but hey, it's March, and uh, NREMT has teamed up with March to bring you uh, <laughs> relaxed guidelines. That's what I tried to say last episode, but I just had to, to fuck it up. Nice. Um, yeah. Anyway, but now I got it in. Um, also, be sure to visit us on Facebook. We are EMS20 slash 20 on Facebook, and we are at EMS2020 show on Instagram. Each and every episode gets its own post. And and also one other thing, uh, EMS 2020 is going to be growing a little bit. We're going to be adding some yeah. content, uh, more on that later, but our social media is going to be more than just a place to talk about, uh, episodes. Um, yeah. So we'll talk yeah. about that, uh, coming up. No major announcement yet, but, uh, it's coming. So be excited, yeah. be, be excited. All right. Woo. Um, if anyone gets that reference that I just dropped right there with the be excited thing, uh, I'll be impressed. So, all right, everybody, uh, we'll see you around. Thanks for listening. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> uh